Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Um, it feels particularly appropriate to talk about how we can bring our practice into um, making a difference in the world and uh, making a difference uh, for the planet. <clears throat> Tomorrow also happens to be Passover in the Jewish um, uh, calendar, uh, which is a, a, a day uh, about liberation, about freedom, about um, liberation, which can also be thought of as um, awakening into um, greater freedom of the heart. Um, so um, I'm particularly happy to share uh, tonight uh, with those uh, two events in mind for tomorrow. So we've um, gone through four different aspects of this engagement in the, in, in the world, bring our practice into the world. Um, first, uh, talking about uh, the, the need to engage in the world when there's um, forces of hatred and um, greed that are particularly dominating um, the headlines and uh, not to um, retreat into our seclusion of practice. Uh, for some, that is that can be a statement of engagement, to go very deep in one's practice as uh, an offering to the world. But um, most of us are engaged in the world, and so uh, it seems uh, important to uh, have our practice be a more active participation, especially when there are forces of, of greed and hatred um, so uh, predominant and, and affecting the consciousness of, of our society. And I called that, that first talk uh, the line between politics and moral imperative, that um, you're not engaging... Um, to see who's who's going to win or who's going to lose, but because you care about about the suffering in the world and want to make a difference, um, then we uh, explored the aspect of practice that we all have our own inner reality and our own um, understanding of the truth of things, uh, and it's important in whatever we do to engage, to see that others might have different viewpoints from us and uh, coming from a very um, sincere and, and basically um, non-antagonistic um, place uh, to realize that we don't know what we don't know and we... Uh, need to have humility when it, and, and let go of our self-righteousness and um, arrogance and thinking that 
uh, our way is always the right way, but to stay connected to our truth and understand that others might see things different ways from us. Um, then uh, the third week we looked at anger and um, frustration and outrage and how to work with those and, and um, those energies that are so natural and understandable responses to, um, to the suffering that we see in the world. And last week, uh, talked about some positive elements of engagement, uh, some, uh, some sources of, of inspiration that, um, uh, that we might keep in mind. And all of these are on Dharma Seed or will be on Dharma Seed or our website that, uh, that, has, that posts all the talks. And tonight I wanted to um, talk about uh, the, what Andrew Harvey, in his book, uh, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, calls the seven laws of sacred activism. That is... Um, understanding certain principles that can be the source of our conscious engagement. Um, And hopefully we'll have some time for discussion as well. Um, First I wanted to uh, briefly mention um, what he lists as five forms of service. This is before getting into the seven laws. But very briefly, that when... Our, our practice is strong enough so that we are moved to make a difference in this world, um, we can serve in a number of different ways. One is he calls uh, serving service to the divine, which is another way, say, in Buddhist terminology, saying serving the Dharma, that is um, being moved by uh, the bigger picture of things to to bring about um, more consciousness into the field of um, of Dharma that is serving life, serving the mystery the the bigger picture um, just because it feels important and um, compelling to be connected to something outside of ourselves and then he talks about um, service to ourself as an instrument of the divine, as an instrument of the Dharma. And that means really taking care of yourself so that you can be uh, the, the, the best expression of, of the Dharma, of truth, of consciousness, of love, which means on a very mundane level, taking care of this body, taking care of this mind and this heart, uh, not just because you want to feel good, but because then all the goodness in you can, can flow out more effectively and, uh, and make a difference uh, to the world around you. Then the, the third form of service he calls uh, service to um, all sentient beings in your life. And that is seeing everybody as an expression of life, as an expression of the Dharma. Uh, The people close to you, the people that you uh, might not know, the people who are very difficult for you, but seeing in a very mm, profound way how 
everyone is a manifestation of the divine or of life. And to uh, serve, as one talks about uh, the bodhisattva ideal, to when you see suffering, that you're moved to, uh, to relieve it because you care, because we're all connected. Then the, the fourth form of service he calls service uh, to our local community, to those near us who are in suffering, whatever cause it is that moves you or people close to you in your, in your own smaller circle uh, that you're serving and in response to the suffering of, of those near you. And then finally, service to the global community. And that is really where um, Earth Day uh, comes in so timely. Service to the global community. This planet is in need of our care. This planet is in need of our love and our consciousness and to do whatever we can to uh, make our amazing home the healthiest and most sustainable uh, that, uh, that we can. So those are just the different areas. And as I'm sharing this, there's a, a lot of information I'll be sharing. Don't feel you've got to remember it all. Just see what touches you and say of those five forms of service, there might be one that you say, oh, that's, that's one that maybe I should bring some consciousness to serving myself as an instrument of the divine or um, serving those um, close to me or seeing everybody as uh, an expression of, of life or the divine. Whatever ones touch you, uh, just let that seed keep, uh, keep germinating. So now to the um, seven laws of sacred activists. The first one he calls the law of sacred practice. And uh, this is something that I think everybody here can uh, particularly connect with, relate to, and understand. Um, I've mentioned before what he calls sacred activism is the union of the spiritual with the engaged activist. And if you're only focusing on the spiritual and not engaged in the world, then you're, uh, you're not using your full potential. But if you're only out there battling in, in an engaged, activistic way, um, but don't have a spiritual dimension to what you're doing, uh, you can get out of balance as well and easily get caught up in anger and frustration and us and them. So this first law, the law of sacred practice, is really the importance of committing to a regular daily spiritual practice. It's just so easy to get caught up in the, the momentum, the speed of, of the world uh, that we can lose our connection to what's important. 
And here's a, a, a quote I want to share from uh, Marion Woodman, uh, who is a, a great Jungian uh, analyst and, uh, and wisdom teacher. She says, uh, Continue, continuing to do it, to do pioneering sacred wor- work, let me try that again, continuing to do pioneering sacred work in a world as crazy and painful as ours, without constantly grounding yourself in sacred practice, would be like running into a forest fire dressed only in a paper tutu. You need some protection, some grounding, and some wisdom to enter into the fray and not get burned up by it or overwhelmed by it. And all the, the truly great transformation, transformational um, activists and healers uh, who are in our culture the, the icons of inspiration and, and activism um, had a basis in spiritual practice. Gandhi, of course, Martin Luther King, the Dalai Lama, all of these people, Mother Teresa, and here's a few, few quotes. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said, prayer and meditation are the keys to my survival. The Dalai Lama was, um, was asked what gives him strength to keep on working for freedom of Tibet and other social causes. And he says, I begin each day with three hours of meditation and visualization practices. It is they that give me what little common wisdom and persistence I have. So if you're saying, you know, I don't have time. I'm, I'm doing a whole lot of important things. Here's the Dalai Lama taking three hours a day. And he's got a pretty full schedule, I have a feeling. So um, it's inspiring. And you can see how it manifests through him. Mother Teresa asked where she found the faith to go on working day in, day out, with ill and abandoned and dying replied, every morning, whether I'm well or sick, I sit in silence before the Holy Sacrament, and I find the adoration of the Holy Sacrament keeps, helps Jesus fill me with everything I need for the day. <clears throat> Martin Luther King was known, that, uh, it was known that prayer was a central part of, of the, the source of his inspiration and, uh, and commitment. Because <clears throat> our practice helps keep us balanced and centered and helps bring a wider perspective to things. <clears throat> and uh, within this, uh, Harvey talks about four different kinds of spiritual practices that we can engage in. Four different streams. One he calls cool practices, like mindfulness meditation, like finding your center, finding your balance, and connecting with the stillness that can 
help deepen access to the that deep place of purity of heart and clarity and wisdom right inside. Cool practice. Then there's warm practices, which are um, practices of the heart. Loving kindness, compassion, Tibetan Tonglen practice where you're, you're taking in the, the suffering around you and turning it into compassion. We, we need that kind of juice in our practice as well, particularly as we're engaging in the world because it helps us stay connected to our passion and caring. Then there's... Um, what he calls, uh, oh yeah, what he talks of as prayer. That is the power of devotion, opening to the divine. And one might think, well, that's not such a, a Buddhist kind of a thing. But actually, devotion is... Um, is very deep in, um, in Buddhist practice. That's why there's bowing all the time and all of the, uh, the statues and icons. They remind us of the best in ourselves. And when we are taking refuge in the Dharma, we are, again, connecting with something much bigger than ourselves. Devotion is, um, if you go to monasteries in Asia, you can see all the chanting that they do, all the bowing that they do, uh, there's a continual uh, expression of devotion. Uh, and then there's prayer in other, uh, other spiritual traditions, of course. And that Devotion, again, that, that taps into our juice. Uh, and so I'm not saying you've got to do all of these at once, you know, but just see which ones speak to you, either that you can give greater um, attention to consciously or which ones that maybe will fill out and balance out perhaps your cool practice of, uh, of just sitting still. And then the fourth one, uh, the fourth sacred practice that he talks about is um, sacred body practices like yoga or um, sacred dance or qigong or all the kinds of embodied practices that don't restrict our spiritual development to uh, the cerebral mental realm, but it's in our bodies that we are, um, that we experience suffering, the cause of suffering, the path, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. The Buddha said, come into your body to discover these truths. So, before I go on to the next law, just invite you for a moment to uh, reflect on whatever spiritual practices you do, 
whether it's your sitting meditation practice or heart practices or devotion or embodied practices and see if you can plant the seed that you're doing these practices as a form of engagement with life so that you can be that instrument of the Dharma, of the divine. It's not even that you need to do anything differently. It's just having that bigger perspective of why you're doing whatever practices you're doing. Not only for yourself, but for beyond yourself. Second law of spiritual practice that Andrew Harvey talks about is the law of surrendering the fruits of action to the divine. That is, whatever engagement, whatever way you're moved to express your practice in this world, to do that action from a selfless place, that is, you're offering your actions to life, to the earth, if Earth Day uh, particularly speaks to what, what touches you, that you do what you do, you know, as the Bhagavad Gita says, you, know, you do what you do um, without being attached to the fruits of your actions and even more, without being attached to getting credit for it. Look at me. I'm a pretty conscious person. You know, I am making a difference in the world. Not to say that that can't be a completely fulfilling and joyful thing to do, but if there is that hook of me, of, of meanness in it, then you're actually losing out on the, the true um, joy of the selfless nature of the process, what in the Buddhist teachings is called anatta, the not-self. You're not doing it to aggrandize or win approval. When you can do whatever moves you to do uh, with that spirit of um, egolessness, it, it helps to mitigate any arrogance or self-righteousness you might have. And also, um, it keeps you centered in thinking it's not up to you to save the world. It's up to you to do your part 
But we can get very grandiose in thinking, oh my goodness, if I'm not out there doing it all, it's all the whole system is going to crash. Uh, that's too much to put on yourself. But you just do your part as an offering to life. And uh, you can take that burden off off your shoulders. <clears throat> like in the Christian tradition, not my will, but thy will. So, just to invite you to reflect for a moment in your own practice, which you probably do with some caring about others or this planet. Just planting the seed as much as possible to come from a place of humility, come from a place of simply allowing yourself to be used, used well. The third law that he talks about is a very interesting one. He calls it the law of recognizing evil. The law of recognizing evil. Now, evil is a word that I um, rarely use because in my mind... When harm is done, when there's senseless cruelty or greed or hatred, uh, it's because we're not seeing clearly the bigger picture. We're not seeing the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness. And so I usually use the word ignorance. But he talks about it in a very... Um, powerful way, at least I find powerful, where he says, if you're bringing your spiritual practice to life to make a difference in the world, not to be naive in thinking that maybe everybody can wake up to the goodness inside of them and then it will all be okay. I think in the long run, that is the vision that we all have the potential for awakening. But when we're engaged in a very realistic way where it's hitting the fan and there's some urgency, uh, we can't be so idealistic that we um, lose sight of the courage that is needed and the forces that we're up against. And I wanted to read to you a very, um, mm, 
a very uh, powerful uh, exchange that he had with uh, that Andrew Harvey had with um, the head of a major agribusiness corporation, uh, and it was at a a UN conference on environment and development that was happening in Rio. So this head of this corporation, big agribusiness corporation, said, uh, uh, you know, I want to take you out to lunch and, uh, and let you uh, understand something. I'll, I'll pay for you at a very swanky restaurant. And so uh, Harvey decided to go, and the next day, this guy cuts to the chase, and I'll read to you what he says. Rio will accomplish absolutely nothing because you do-gooders are so naive about the real world. Most of you that I've met truly believe that if the CEOs, like me, for instance, really knew what harm their corporate policies were doing, they would rend their Armani suits, fling out their Rolex-wreathed arms, burst into tears, and change. This is madness and shows how little you dare to know about what is really going on. And how can you even begin to be effective until you understand what you're up against? Let me tell you what you're up against. You're up against people like me. I know exactly what my company is doing and what devastation it is causing to thousands of lives. I should know I'm running it. I know and I do not care. Just how this is landing for you as you hear it. I've decided I want a grand gold-plated lifestyle and the perks and jets and houses that go with it, and I will do anything, bend the law, have people removed, bribe local government officials, you name it, to get what I want. I know, too, that none of my shareholders care a rat's ass what I do or how I do it, providing I keep them swimming in cash. I said that you were up against people like me. That is true in one sense, but not in another, because the truth is that I am in you, too. A part of you is like me, just as ruthless and dedicated to your own selfish agenda. But you can dress up this ruthlessness as your mission and never unmask the lust for power that might be lurking behind your righteous facade. Just a little more. What limits all so-called seekers and activists that I meet is that they both shy away from the full realization of the power of the, of the dark. The seekers I meet uh, shy away from both the full realization of the power. The seekers I meet are frankly bliss bunnies, I call them, about as useful in the real world as a rubber ball would be in a war. The activists I know enjoy denouncing others but aren't at all in the business of unmasking their own destructiveness or the self-destructiveness of their dreary and banal self-righteousness. So, um, how does that land? 
it's it, when I read that, you know, I usually give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, but he was just telling it like it is. And to uh, when he says the work of practice is not only to see it out there, but to see it in here too, and to see there are these forces really of, of greed, hatred, and delusion that have incalculable impact on our lives and on our world. And we shouldn't be naive in thinking, oh, if only they could see the truth. On the one hand, I think that's true. If only they really could see the truth of where happiness lies, where true happiness lies, then things would change. But on the other, not to be so naive as to think that we can convince people and just hold the light out for them to see and not realize what we're up against, both externally and internally. So part of this engagement with these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion is to... um, protect ourselves as best we can from our own hearts that can get caught up in that energy and also from those who very knowingly would cause destruction and are deceitful in their um, agenda. This is, I'm, I, I, I can say this is a hard one for me, but I think it's so important to, uh, to not be too idealistic. It's so easy to get into then the bad guys and the good guys, and that's where the, the, the problem comes when we, again, are creating an us and them and not seeing, oh, this is, this is me too. It's in here too. Or um, we have to um, fight hatred with hatred. How can we see that that is part of the fabric of life and still not be caught up in hatred as a response? So the law of recognizing evil. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, Andrew Harvey's response, yeah, his, um, he said, uh, the guy asked, am I getting through to you? And Andrew Harvey said, you are. Thank you. You've taught me a lesson today that I will try to remember even when I don't want to. And then he says, although I heard clearly what he said and the way he said it with the cynical bravura of someone who thought himself massively smarter than anyone else, I could also hear what he calls dark wisdom in what he was trying to tell me. And I knew 
I needed to hear it. And that he was in a perverse way. Uh, he may well have been trying to give me a gift in his own perverse way. <clears throat> so, this leads to the fourth law, which is what he calls the law of alchemy of anger. And this is one that I talked about earlier. That is, um, a few weeks ago, letting yourself feel all the anger and the outrage that you can't stuff it. You have to hold it very wisely and skillfully with love, with compassion. Let your heart break. What he talks about is letting your heart shatter. And then it can turn into fierce compassion. But you have to really allow for all the pain inside and not deny it, pretend it's not there, cover it over, or be drowned, drowning in it. But to just acknowledge that pain that's there, and that is that magical alchemy of where suffering turns into compassion. Or uh, the image in, in, in Tibetan Buddhism of Manjushri with, with his sword of wisdom. Let's see, are there any, any uh, icons? Manjushri. Ah, over there. Right? With a sword. Where? Up which one? Oh, the first stained glass over here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Where that sword cuts through confusion. You know, he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a, um, uh, you know, a, a soft kid glove uh, or a, a, a blankie. He's got a sword of wisdom <laughs> cutting through, using the force of, of, of fierceness um, coupled with discriminating wisdom to cut through. So the law of alchemy of anger. You might just for a few moments reflect mm, your own outrage, your own frustration or disbelief at what humans do to other humans. And just planting the seed to let your own pain and frustration and anger be transmuted into fierce compassion. Not stuck in the anger, but using it wisely and skillfully, the energy behind it held with love. 
few more. Go through them. The fifth is the law of constant, humble shadow work, which is, it's been touched on before, but this is, this is going in deeper to not only see, oh yes, like those CEOs, I have this in me, but to really go inside and see how the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion operate within you and to um, bring all the blind spots that just about all of us have if we're not fully cooked, uh, bring it it into our consciousness and let ourselves consciously work on them and be humbled by them but continue to, to grow and wake up and acknowledge all of those places without identifying with them, without taking ownership of them. Oh, I'm such a, a nasty person or I'm such a self-centered person. Or They're part of being human and they manifest in each of us in our own unique way. But to not take them on as your identity, to see them as parts of yourself that that need uh, more attention and reflection. Again, bringing out uh, a greater humility. Because until we do, we are stuck in a certain kind of narcissism. And he, he talks about a couple of different narcissists. The mystic narcissist, who is addicted to transcendence and denial. Yes, everything is okay, you know. I'm okay in here. I'll just keep on with my path and uh, straight out into the sunset. And then the, uh, the activist's narcissism of being the Messiah and the Savior and, you know, just which leads to burnout and uh, winning the battle uh, without that same humility by seeing the places that we can get caught. So this is the law of constant, humble shadow work. Sixth, oh, before we go on, just reflect for a moment, okay, in case there might be some places of stash that you could use some attention in. How to let your spiritual practice open up to those places in the service of making a difference in the world and to bring a light onto all those places that we might hide from ourselves. Our pettiness or our fears or our wantings or our hatred. Opening to our humanness as a as part of our engaged practice.
now we come to the sixth law, which is the law of joy. Yes. You know, this is, as you can see, this is n- not easy work to, 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 to care so much about the world. I remembered having a conversation with Andrew Harvey because uh, I was so moved by the book, and I said, hey, I, I, I want to connect with you and set up an appointment, and uh, a phone appointment. And he said, uh, well, let me ask, uh, have you let your heart be shattered? You know? And I said, it's getting there. He says, you have to let your heart be shattered before you can really do this work. But not to stop there at the bad news, at the shattering. That's too much. But if you're willing to go the whole, the whole route, then um, you also need absolutely to connect with the law of joy. The, what he calls the triumphant yes. Really what I call um, loving goodness. There is a goodness inside of us that is connected to life, that rejoices in life. And the more we can feel our aliveness, the more we are moved to make a difference in the world because then we see aliveness all around us. There's the, uh, we can get joy from being inspired by others, or being out in nature, what he calls sacred friendship is another source of joy, like-minded friendship. Loving the divine and all the creatures in it. And also the joy of play, just letting ourselves delight in play and not be so heavy and serious that that we can't dance in this world. Otherwise, why why put yourself out to want to make a difference if it's all just heaviness and and somberness? Mm. And this is the thing that I I just love about uh, Al Gore, where he talks about just loving life. And I sent out, if, for those who are on the, um, uh, the e-group, which you can get on if you go to the brochure, you can see how to get our, on our announcements list. I sent out a link uh, uh, this afternoon of that Al Gore uh, TED Talk that he recently gave um, in February called... Uh, uh, the case for optimism in climate change. Uh, it was, it's so beautiful. He, and he, he gives the heavy news, and then he talks about all the, the positive developments and how much we, we love this planet. You need to access that aliveness if you're really going to not only make a difference within yourself, but magnetize other people and say, hey, I want to join that party too. So the law of joy, letting yourself feel alive. And 
just invite you for a moment to go inside and just see, are you in touch with your aliveness these days? And if not, how could you access it more? Are you letting yourself be inspired? Are you connecting with the natural world? Are you letting yourself be touched by life all around you? Are you letting yourself play and appreciate what it means to be alive? If not, can you give that more attention? And now, just the last of these laws, what he calls the law of networks of grace. And what he is talking about in this is that um, there is something happening in this world. I mentioned it in, uh, in the last talk about all the, the movements and all the activities of people coming together to work together and make a difference. And that when people come together, uh, I'm remembering Nelson Mandela's uh, phrase, there's a multiplicity of courage that we can move each other just by our own caring and commitment and, uh, and give ourselves, inspire each other and inspire ourselves um, just by holding hands. It has to come from communities getting together, from the, 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 the magic of Sangha and learning more and more to work together and be a part of something bigger, which in the last, that's been one of the, the gifts in the last 15 or 20 years since uh, the interconnection of consciousness has sped up so with uh, the internet that we're not doing it alone and we're part of this something bigger that's happening, a, a zeitgeist of consciousness as well as the, all the greed, hatred, and delusion. So the law of networks of grace how people come together and make a difference. And just invite you to reflect and see if you're part of any network of grace. This might be one of them for you coming here on a Thursday night. But if there are others, to just let yourself feel the joy of connection. And if there aren't, 
just acknowledging the importance of connecting with others so that your sadness or despair or anger or whatever, it's not kept within yourself that you can use that energy and harness it for together action. This might be a good thing. It's a needed thing. See what networks of grace you're part of or might become part of. So, these are the seven laws of sacred practice. And um, I hope as we've gone through these and, and these weeks that you hold your, your practice, your Dharma practice or your spiritual practice in that wider context where you're not doing it just for yourself, but uh, you make a difference in the world. There's no way you can't. There's no way you can't affect those around you. And they're consciously done. There's a very great um, up-leveling of the work you do on yourself. So we have um, a little while, uh, a few minutes, and uh, we can uh, have some comments or questions and um, end by 9.30. If you can stay till the end, that would be great. If there's any questions, comments, or things that you want to share. And let's, oh, thanks, Jackie. And I think you need to put it right next to your lips because I think, I don't know how loud the volume is. Actually, right right close to your lips. Not a, That's not it. a question. It's actually not a question. Um, but I feel that your talk is uh, quite transcendental. And um, I personally never heard the devil talk. <laughs> heard the what? The devil talk. Mm-hmm. That guy in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been religious, but I've always been sort of mystical. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was thinking that those words, it's not, it's much beyond like the Israelis think the Palestinians are horrible and they're willing to chop them up. The Palestinians are willing to do the same thing to the Israelis. But this is different. This seemed like pure evil without cause. And uh, I'd never heard anything like that. How does, so, it, how does it strike you? It strikes me that maybe we, maybe God needs to evolve, <laughs> God, and we are centers of evolution for the divine power itself. Mm-hmm. Because it seems that that evil 
may be a kind of a strain which is part of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I see it that way myself. You know, that there's... Again, the word evil is just such a, 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 an intense word. And it's all part of the fabric of the universe. So one could say that's part of the perfection as well. I mean, there it is in the, in the, uh, the, the Judeo-Christian idea of there's the, you know, there's the God and then there's, there's uh, whether you call it the devil or the fallen angels or whatever, that's part of the package. So, you know, as uh, the, 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 the forces of, of greed and hatred bring out consciousness and consciousness bring, it's this play back and forth. So I take, personally, take the perspective that it's all part of the perfection. So it's whatever level you're looking at it, but even having that bigger perspective, you can't be naive and thinking, oh, they're really fine, but I've got to come in here and uh, you know, do conscious battle with these forces, like in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Krishna and, and, and Arjuna, it's all about the, 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 the battle between good and evil. Um, and to, to really take that in and seeing that in the end, I think love is stronger than, than hatred. Um, yeah. Yunus? Right, when, real close to you. Yeah. When you speak of fear, yeah, you got to put it right, right next to you because the volume is a bit low. It is on. Yeah. When you speak of, um, of your heart being shattered, what does that really mean? Uh, is that similar to being deeply disappointed? Being that, deeply disappointed. Yeah. Is that similar to having deep grief? Is that similar to having that first experience of when? You thought your parents were angels, but they have deeply disappointed you because you consider they're very mm-hmm. flawed people. Well, I, I can tell you personally for me. Okay, um, when I, even though I was well aware of, say, climate change, as that that's the one that has gotten to me, and there there's so many that can get so much suffering to go around. You know, I saw an inconvenient truth. I was aware of some of some of the facts and all. But when I read uh, Bill McKibben's book Earth, um, that I couldn't hide anymore. I couldn't deny anymore. And as I, I'm, I'm generally a, an optimistic kind of a person, and like to see the good and like to see the possibilities. But when I read that book and really took it in, my heart was shattered. And it took, um, it was a couple of years 
just really, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't depressed for two years straight, but that put a whole different color on my optimism and felt and took in for, uh, in a new way, we don't know how things are going to be here and it's going to be very, very messy and there's going to be tremendous suffering and just really letting myself feel that um, is really painful and also uh, motivated me to want to do something in my own little way. So I think each of us maybe go through our own version of that where you, you, the naivete or the rose is off the, uh, the bloom is off the rose. And, oh, wow. And really taking in the first noble truth and letting it be a source of moving to come to the end of suffering. Okay, so um, we have to end here. Um, sorry, we can close with just uh, a loving kindness and may our coming here together be of benefit to all living beings on this planet and for the healing of the earth itself.